All right, good morning. morning. It's uh, good to be back after two Sundays away. Um, I usually enjoy going on vacation, but it also makes me appreciate home. So I do really am uh, thankful to be back. And I want to thank Steve Crosby and Chuck Redfern for uh, filling in for me while I was away. I know they addressed some pretty challenging issues. Um, specifically mental illness and the church's attitude towards immigrants. And I really appreciate the perspective that they brought to those issues. So if you missed those messages, I really encourage you to go online this week or download them from the podcast. But today, we're picking up right where we left off three weeks ago in our series on the book of Daniel. And uh, if you want to follow along in your own Bible, you can start making your way there. We're uh, picking up in chapter 5. I'll start with a question. How many of you have heard the expression, the writing's on the wall? Right. Um, most of you, it looks like. Uh, it's a way of saying all signs indicate that our situation is about to get worse. Right. Uh, if a company fails to make a profit for several years in a row, the employees will start saying, oh, the writing's on the wall, we're not going to be working here much longer. Well, if you've ever wondered where that expression comes from, you probably haven't, but if you have, uh, it comes from this chapter in the book of Daniel. And I bring that up not just because it's a fun fact, but because I want us to be reminded of the fact that the Bible has had a significant influence on our culture. Whether we recognize it or not, whether we've ever cracked open a Bible ourselves and read anything from it, the Bible has had tremendous influence on our language, on our literature, and on our values, whether we know it or not. So keep that in idea in mind, because I'm actually going to return to that later. So uh, let's do a quick recap of where we are in the book of Daniel so far. Uh, remember, this book started with Babylon and its king, Nebuchadnezzar, attacking the holy city of Jerusalem, right? And uh, Nebuchadnezzar plundered the temple. He took articles from the holy temple of God and brought them to Babylon. And he also stole away many of the young men of Israel and brought them to live in Babylon, forced them, you know, against their will to, to go and live there. And Daniel, of course, was one of those young men who was forced to live in exile. But Daniel has managed to remain faithful to his God while in exile. And what he's done is he's, he's managed to do something that all of us as followers of Christ should be, follow, should be striving to do uh, in the culture that we're in, uh, which is to participate but not assimilate. That was what we talked about in the first message in this series. Participate but don't assimilate. Uh, Daniel has very much participated in this culture. He's been involved in the government. He's been an advisor to the king. He has not separated himself. He's been involved. But at the same time, any time uh, the culture of Babylon comes in conflict with the word of God that he knows, what does he choose? He chooses to follow, he chooses to follow the word of God. And that's a great model for us, I think, because as Christians, often we fall into the trap of, say, we, we participate in the culture, but we just uncritically accept everything our culture says. So we, we participate, but we assimilate. And then some of us, we isolate and we separate from the culture, and we just kind of stay in our Christian bubble, uh, and, and, and that's not good, 
right? We're not assimilating, but we're not participating either, so we can't have an influence on the culture. But Daniel does both. He participates and he does not assimilate. And as a result of that, he has tremendous influence on Babylon and on the king, on King Nebuchadnezzar. As we looked at uh, last time we were in this series, three weeks ago, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar eventually came to recognize and honor the God of Israel, right? Now, chapter 5 picks up 30 years after where we left off with uh, the story of Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar at this point is actually long gone. There's a new king in town, King uh, Belshazzar, and Belshazzar doesn't even know Daniel personally. And Belshazzar, as we're going to see, likes to party. Uh, So let's look at this story, chapter 5, starting in verse 1. But before we do, let's bow our heads and say a quick prayer. Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you so much for this morning and for the opportunity to gather together and look at your word. And I pray that you would open each one of us up to receive whatever it is you want to tell us, God. Help us to be attentive to your spirit. Um, Give us spiritual insight, Lord. Give us wisdom and help us to be transformed for the better uh, by what happens this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, chapter 5. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. The king called out for the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners to be brought and said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. We're going to skip down to verse 13. Uh, In the interim, the queen tells the king about Daniel and reminds him that there's this guy in the kingdom who can probably interpret this. So, So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts for yourself, give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. O king, 
The Most High God gave your father, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the peoples and nations and men of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from the people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you and you and your, your nobles, your wives and your concubines, you drank from them, and you praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. You did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. This is what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. The very night Belshazzar, the king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. So, that's where the expression comes from. The writing's on the wall. For King Belshazzar, the writing was literally on the wall, right? And it was put there by this scary, disembodied hand directed by God, and it delivered a message of judgment, right? Party time is over, your reign is over, time's up. Now, if you're anything like me, you might be wondering, what is up with this hand, this disembodied hand? Why did God choose to deliver the message that way? Is it just because a disembodied hand is creepy? Well, this is where it's helpful to know something about the Babylonian culture. When the Babylonians went to war, they would keep a record of how many people they killed by, guess what? cutting off the right hands of the slain. So a disembodied hand would have been a symbol of a defeated enemy. And so when God delivers this message in this way, it's kind of like he's saying, Belshazzar, I know you think I'm dead. I know you think that I'm just a casualty of war, a casualty of Babylon's power, but surprise, I'm very much alive. You know, many people today, like Belshazzar, they think of God as being dead, right? And, you know, in some sense, they think of God as being dead. Maybe they think of God as being non-existent, or they think of him as being powerless to affect anything in history. They think of God as being irrelevant, as some kind of, you know, casualty of the Enlightenment and science. But this story is saying, you know, even if it seems like God is dead, he is very much alive. 
You know, it occurred to me as I put myself in Belshazzar's shoes that if he was trying to answer the question, is Israel's God real and alive, he could have made a case for either side. Depending on which evidence he chose to focus on. You know, he could have said, well, you know what? Our nation attacked Jerusalem, the city of Israel's God, over 60 years ago now. And we took items from their sacred temple and we brought them to Babylon. And you know what? We're still here. Judgment hasn't come upon us. That was 60 years ago. I don't think that Israel's God is much of a threat. I don't think Israel's God is real and alive. He's either fake, dead, or powerless. Right? Belshazzar could have looked at the evidence, he could have focused on one kind of evidence, and he could have made that argument. Right? But, on the other hand, Belshazzar could have focused on another kind of evidence, and he could have argued the opposite. Right? Remember, uh, Daniel recalls the story of Belshazzar's predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, who came to believe in Israel's God, as we looked at last time we talked about the book of Daniel. And he says to Belshazzar, you knew about all this, right? In other words, you knew about Nebuchadnezzar. You knew that this was the very king who attacked Jerusalem and plundered the temple, and yet that man came to believe in the God of Israel. You knew that. See, if Belshazzar had wanted to make a case for the reality of Israel's God, he could have done it. He could have said, hey, my predecessor Nebuchadnezzar, the guy who attacked Jerusalem, he went crazy. He lost his mind. He became like an animal, and he was eating grass like an animal. We all thought he was gone. He was never coming back. But his sanity was restored. And do you know what made the difference? The thing that made him go from being insane to being a, a, a ruler again was that he finally acknowledged Israel's God. That was the thing that made the difference. And you know what? I can't explain that except to say that Israel's God is real and alive. But Belshazzar obviously didn't focus on that kind of evidence, right? Instead, he chose to focus on the evidence that Israel's God is a casualty of Babylon's attack, right? He just chose to see him as a severed, lifeless hand, like one of the people fallen in battle. I think he focused on the evidence that he liked, right? The evidence that confirmed his bias. The evidence that didn't require him to humble himself. Most of us prefer that kind of evidence. A lot of people are like Belshazzar. Some of you know that when I worked in campus ministry, I interacted a lot with very skeptical students, you know, people who identified as atheists and agnostics. And I would debate a lot about the arguments for God's existence, and I would try to make a case for why they should believe that God is real and alive. And after having a lot of those conversations, I came to a point where I realized something. I realized if you are looking for evidence that God is dead, there is no God, you'll always be able to find something to support that. And on the other hand, if you're looking for evidence that God is real and that Jesus is alive, you could find evidence for that, too. I don't want to oversimplify this, but to a certain extent, we do see what we want to see. And that was true for Belshazzar. Maybe you're somebody who has trouble believing that God 
is real and alive. And if that's you, I want you to know I have sympathy for you. I think I understand where you're coming from. But I encourage you to ask yourself, am I focusing on only one side of the evidence? Because sometimes that happens. You know, sometimes, like Belshazzar, we, we become very narrow-minded, and we only focus on one kind of evidence, like the presence of evil, or some sort of trauma that we experienced in our lives that we have a hard time believing. How could a loving God ever allow for something like that? And we get fixated on that. But my encouragement is don't just focus on that kind of evidence. You know, and if there's one thing that this story reminds us to focus on as evidence, it is the evidence of transformed lives, right? Because Nebuchadnezzar's life changed dramatically. Belshazzar's successor or predecessor. It went from insanity to stability. And many people have a story like that, right? Many people have a story about how they encountered God and it led to a kind of transformation that defies natural explanation. Many, many people have a story that goes something like, I was hopeless, I was drug addicted, I was an alcoholic, I was abusive, I was angry, I was promiscuous, I was a liar, I was completely self-absorbed and prideful, but I met God, I heard the gospel, right? And something happened to me, something changed in me. I don't fully understand it, but I was set free. It was like I was in a prison and somebody came and unlocked the door and let me out. And that was God who let me out, right? Many people have a story like that, but nobody ever says, I was hopeless. I was drug addicted. I was an alcoholic. I was abusive. I was angry. But then I realized there is no God, right? And that everything came from nothing for nothing and will eventually become nothing. And then I was set free, no one says that. We've been going through something called the Alpha Program on Monday nights here at the church, as Earl mentioned. You're probably all tired of hearing the announcements, but um, Alpha is a course that, it's a series of videos that looks at the essentials of the Christian faith. And one of the things that I really appreciate about the Alpha Program is that it includes testimonies, you know, stories of transformed lives. And I find those stories extremely powerful. And i just like us to listen to one of them right now. This is uh, a testimony from a man named Shane Taylor. I got in with the wrong crowd and I started to um, pinch cars, burgle houses, uh, become known, me and my friends become known as very high-profile thieves really. I used to carry big knives, uh, the, the big knives to the smaller knives down my waist. And I was the kind of person where if you pulled a knife out, I would use it. I ended up stabbing someone in the head. I ended up um, stabbing someone just missing his heart and going through the top of his shoulder, uh, the, the top of his chest and his shoulder away. He dropped to the floor and so I was on the run for two attempted murders. And then I was just, when I went to prison, I had such a hatred for the system and I couldn't handle being told what to do, couldn't handle prison officers mucking me about. When I went out on association, I got the prison officer and I, uh, I stabbed him. And then this led to me going into maximum security prisons, being put on CSC, to where they feed you through a hatch in the door. There's no physical contact, so they have to have riot shields and riot gear on. Um, and that was my life for a long, long time. 
basically, and I, I just was going from prison to prison, prison to prison. But then I ended up going to Long Larton in Worcestershire. And when I was in there, I ended up going in an alpha course. Never heard of an alpha course, didn't know anything. And I just remember walking in because they'd sent me down. I sat down on a chair and I thought, oh no, it's a Christian thing. And we'd just go there every week and I would argue. And the pastor, um, I remember he come to me. He said, right, I'm going to say a few scriptures first before we pray. And one of them was, no one's righteous, not one. We all fall short of the glory of God. And then he said the verses about Jesus and explained a bit why he died on the cross for sinners and stuff. And then he said, pray. So I started praying. And I said, uh, God, I said, God, if you're real, come into my life because I hate who I am. And nothing happened. But then, as I was talking to the pastor, I started to feel this energy feeling in my stomach. And it started to raise up and raise up and raise up and raise up. And I just broke out into uncontrollable um, tears. And I just sobbed. <clears throat> and I just... Right there. Because that was a change in my whole life. I knew God was real. Um, and no one will change that now. And then I remember <laughs> running on the wing. People clearly knew that I would become a Christian. So I actually helped them on another two Alpha courses. And then I, um, I got released. I've been in a prison where I... Because you would have thought that the prison where I stopped the prison officers would have been the last prison to have me. But they were the first. That's how God works. The best thing for me is going in prisons and helping the lads in prison. And, and trying to tell them about God. I've got um, four kids and then my life. Um, and what upsets me is because now I know um, that back then, if I had the kids, uh, they wouldn't have had a good upbringing. And now they sit on the night and have Bible studies with their dad. Um, <clears throat> have Bible studies with their dad, have a life, a beautiful, um, my life and this probably is my wife and my kids are the best gift that, apart from the grace God's given me is the best gift I've ever he'll ever give me didn't expect to cry like that recovered now if you're on the fence about whether or not God is really there. If you're wondering, you know, does he, does he exist? Is he really alive and relevant? That's the kind of evidence that I encourage you to take very seriously and not to ignore. There's this undeniable power for transformation that comes from an experience with God, but it doesn't come from denying God. Pay attention to that. Don't make the mistake that Belshazzar did of not paying attention to Nebuchadnezzar's transformation. So switching gears a little bit, you know, as I reflected on this story this week, there was a part of it that, an image that kept getting stuck in my head, and it's the scene of the party. 
You know, everybody is drinking, and they're drinking from goblets stolen from the temple, right? And they're using them to toast to other gods. And as I thought about this image, it occurred to me that it's a good metaphor for something that we in our culture often do. You know, to put it figuratively, we use the goblets from the temple to toast to other gods. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is that our culture has sacred things, but we often fail to honor God with those sacred things. We often fail to acknowledge God as the source of those things. So remember earlier how I talked about how the Bible has had significant influence on our culture, right? Whether we realize it or not, it has. And of course, it's influenced us in little ways, like sayings, the writing on the wall that we just use, not even knowing where they come from. But it's also affected our culture in much more substantial ways. We live in a society where people kind of take it for granted that humans have rights, right? Why is that? We have a very developed idea of justice. Generally, we believe that people who are disabled or poor or sick shouldn't be abandoned, right? That they also have rights. Generally, we believe that generosity is better than stinginess and that humility is better than pride. So here's the question. Are these beliefs just innate? Are they intrinsic to human nature? Well, I would say that an honest assessment of history and culture indicates no, they are not. Um, there are cultural forces that shape these ideas, and perhaps the most significant cultural force that has shaped these ideas that we have is the teachings of Jesus and the Bible, whether we are conscious of that or not. We might think, oh, the teachings of Jesus, those are, you know, they're just intrinsic, intrinsic to human nature. We all know that you shouldn't take revenge and you should be generous. You should love your enemies. You should forgive. You should do unto others as they, they would do to you. You know, that's, that's human nature to recognize those things, but it's not. I've been reading this book called The Righteous Mind uh, by an author, Jonathan Haidt. He's a social psychologist. He's not uh, a Christian himself. But this book is this very interest, interesting analysis of morality and how it develops and, and that sort of thing. And he talks in the book about a tribe in the Philippines where the young men gain honor by killing strangers outside the tribe, beheading them, to be more specific. And these, are, these people that they kill, they're strangers. They have no prior feud with them. It's not a revenge killing or anything like that. The young men of the tribe, they'll just get together occasionally for what they call hunting parties. And they go out and they find their victims and they, they kill them. And then they finish the evening with a, a, a long uh, time of communal celebratory singing. And this is how they feel affirmed as men and feel like they have honor as, as men. Now, it's very important for us to recognize these are just human beings. These are people who are cut from the same cloth as you and me. It's only a, 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 a racist impulse that leads us to say, oh, those people are totally different from me. If you or I grew up in that culture with that system of ethics shaping us, we'd probably think the same way they do. We'd probably think this was okay. 
what we need to realize is that so many of the values that we take for granted in our society, so many of the things that we recognize as good are not innate, and we owe a huge debt to the influence of Jesus in Scripture for their presence. In our culture, we benefit from the influence of Jesus in Scripture passed down through the generations, but many of us fail to honor the source. So we take the sacred things that we've inherited, but we toast it to false gods. Right? We use these things to toast to consumerism, or to the American dream, or to humanism. But this story is a reminder that that doesn't work. The best thing that we can do with the sacred influence that we've inherited is to humbly recognize its source and honor the God who, as Daniel says, holds in his hand our lives and all of our ways. Jesus said in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. And what Jesus is saying here is that we cannot thrive spiritually if we are not connected to him. You know, if we try to be moral and righteous apart from a relationship with him, here's the thing. We are, we are like a branch that has been severed from the source. And a branch that has been severed from the source, it's like a flower, right? It can look pretty for a while when you buy flowers and, you know, big Y or whatever. <laughs> they look nice at first, but they don't last that long, right? Same with a Christmas tree. A Christmas tree is like a branch cut off from the vine. A Christmas tree looks really nice for a while, but give it enough time, the needles start falling, it turns brown, it dries out because it's not connected to the root. And what I'm getting at here is we might be able to maintain some form of Jesus-ish uh, ethics and values if we don't have a relationship with him for a time. In our culture as a whole, we might be able to reflect some sort of Jesus-ish values and ethics if we have no relationship with him, if our culture as a whole has no relationship with him, if the individuals have no relationship with him, but only for a time. Over time, as we are disconnected from the source, like a Christmas tree, eventually the needles will start to fall, eventually will start to dry out, eventually the writing will be on the wall. So I want to close this message with a simple reminder, stay connected. Stay connected to the vine, stay connected to Jesus. Don't fall into the trap of saying, well, I'm just going to live a moral life without any connection to Jesus. Recognize the need that you have for your relationship with him. Stay connected to the vine. Keep praying. Keep fellowshipping. Keep reading and studying and meditating on his teachings. And keep listening for his voice. Remain in him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to avoid the mistakes that Belshazzar made. We don't want to neglect the evidence of your power and presence in the transformed lives around us. We don't want to focus on the wrong kind of evidence. And we don't want to use sacred things to toast to idols. God, help us 
to remain connected to you. Help us to stay on the vine, Lord. Help us to not try and uh, succeed morally um, without a relationship with you, Lord. Help us to recognize our need and our dependence on Jesus. We thank you uh, for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.